Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I teach here at the school, and I'll be chairing tonight's talk by Richard Stengel. Uh, Richard will speak for about 35 or 40 minutes, and then we'll be taking questions probably in clumps of three. If you're not used to the procedure here at LSE, a microphone will come to you. Uh, please just say who you are, ask your question quickly, uh, and then Richard will obviously provide erudite answers afterwards. Uh, following the session at 8 o'clock, Richard will be signing copies of his new book, uh, Mandela's Way, Lessons on Life in the Lobby Outside. Uh, now is the time, please, also to turn off your mobile phones if you haven't done so already. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have uh, Richard, or Rick Stengel, with us at the LSE tonight. Uh, Richard was educated at Princeton University. I think he also was on the university basketball team and later was a Rhodes Scholar at Christ Church, Oxford. Uh, although he's written for a number of journals, uh, New Yorker, New Republic, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times, I think it's fair to say that his career has mainly been forged with Time magazine, first as an essayist and senior writer, and more recently since 2006 as Time's 16th managing editor. Uh, I think Time goes back about 90 years. That's the connection uh, with 1923. About 90 years then. I can't do the math. Um, and of course, you know, it's one of the most widely read and respected magazines of public affairs. But in addition to his day job, which we were just speaking about on the way down, uh, Richard, of course, has also published a, a number of books, including one uh, from 2001 with the, with the delicious title, I thought, You're Too Kind, A Brief History of Flattery, uh, which has a rather nice cover, too, when I looked it up. Uh, as a book writer, though, uh, he's probably best known, or is best known, for collaborating for several years in the early 1990s with uh, Nelson Mandela on his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, during the making and writing of that book, Richard recorded a number of interviews with, with Mandela and other respondents, uh, which he later donated to the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Uh, also, I think in the course of writing that book and subsequently, um, Richard has kept a, a diary of his exchanges with Nelson Mandela and I believe that you're going to be drawing on that diary um, and have done to produce the book that he's going to be speaking about tonight, Mandela's Way, Lessons on Life. Um, I, I guess that there are very few people who actually know Nelson Mandela uh, as well as uh, Rick Stengel. Um, Madiba, I believe you call Mandela as a godfather to one of your sons. But also, uh, I was able to look at the book a little bit over the weekend, uh, whilst Richard clearly has enormous respect for Nelson Mandela, is able to present him in the round, a man of great complexity and also flaws. And the first chapter of this book is called A Complex Man, and it's the complexity of Nelson Mandela's lessons on life that we look forward to hearing about tonight. Thank you for that um, kind introduction. Having once written a book on flattery, it's very fraught to introduce me or for me to introduce other people, and you did a lovely job. Um, thank you. I am uh, really delighted to be here tonight and to talk about what is certainly my favorite subject, um, Nelson Mandela. Um, as you heard, this all came about because I did have this extraordinary and privileged opportunity to work with Mandela on his autobiography, which like so many things in life, came, out, came about because of a kind of serendipitous process. I had uh, 
gone to South Africa for the first time in the 1980s for Rolling Stone magazine and um, written a book uh, called January's Sun about life in a little town in South Africa where there was a forced removal going on. And, um, and the American publisher who signed up uh, Mandela right after he came out of prison uh, for his memoirs um, had started sort of panicking because he, uh, he had a lot to do, uh, uh, preventing civil war in South Africa, trying to unite the country, form a constitution, have a democratic election. And he, he hadn't really started working on the book at all. And there was a local collaborator who had produced um, about 100 pages of a work of fiction uh, based on no interviews with Mandela and making up dialogue. And that wasn't working. And um, someone handed the uh, publisher a copy of January Sun. He read it overnight and called me the next day and, and made me an offer I couldn't refuse, which is to work with one of the greatest men of the 20th century, maybe ever. And um, I had never met Mandela. Uh, the work that I had done in South Africa was mainly on the ground about the, the struggle there at the time. And, um, and after getting the approval from the ANC, I went down there to, to start the project, and you know I, I started doing research, of course, uh, on my own. And um, I got down there. I let them know that I was there. They'd paid him a, a pretty vast sum of money at the time to do his um, autobiography, and they kind of um, I, I don't know if there are any South Africans here or, or know that period, but it was a it was a very disorganized time, and the ANC uh, was a very disorganized organization. And um, they kept me sort of cooling my heels for about three weeks. And I was just chomping at the bit, trying to get to see him. And finally, they, they, they let me in to see him and, um, in his office in what was then Shell House, uh, where the ANC was headquartered. And you know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to meet Nelson Mandela. You can't quite believe you're, you're, you're seeing him. And uh, he's an extraordinary physical specimen, beautiful man. His skin is beautiful, his great presence. And, and I was a little bit awestruck, like everybody else. And, it was a very short meeting, and at the end of the meeting, he said to me, I assume two or three more meetings like this and you will have enough for your book. <laughs> so I, I, as I said, been frustrated, and, and I kind of lost it a little bit, and I said, Mr. Mandela, if you think we'll have enough for a book after two or three sessions, you're crazy. At which point, an aide walked into the office, I think, as I was saying the word crazy, and promptly ushered me out. <laughs> and I had visions of the whole project uh, being scuttled right there. So um, I begged and begged um, uh, the great Barbara Masekela, who was working as his assistant at that time, Hugh Masekela's uh, sister. And I said, Barbara, I've got to get in to see him. I've got to apologize. She scheduled an appointment for me a, a couple of days later, went in to see him early in the morning. He's a very early riser. And um, we sat down, and the first thing I said to him is, I said, just, I'm so sorry for my behavior the other day. And again, I was a little bit nervous, and I, and I said, I I'm so sorry that I was so brusque with you. I have no idea why I chose that word. And he kind of leaned back and gave that worldly smile that understands everything, and he said to me, if you thought you were brusque with me the other day, you must be a very gentle young man indeed. <laughs> and uh, of course, what I realized, and I laughed, and, I, and, and what I realized was that you know, he'd been in prison for 27 years. He'd been <laughs> abused by guards and warders. Before that, he was on the run as the head of the military wing of the ANC. Uh, I, I think he'd had people a little more brusque with him than that. And, and in a way, it was the beginning of our friendship and relationship, because I think um, he saw me in a way as something a little bit exotic and, and different. He, he was very unfamiliar. I never say this in America. 
because Americans take umbrage at it, but he was very unfamiliar with America, and, um, and America was not on his sort of mental map. He, he really is a kind of um, Anglophile, and when you think about it, he was a man who was born in 1918 in the Transkei, this remote part of South Africa, uh, and he was a he had a kind of royal upbringing. People always say he's the son of a king. He was not the son of a king. He was the son of a local headman who was appointed by the British colonial authorities. But he had a privileged upbringing. When his father died, he was raised by the king of the Tembu. And he went to these uh, amazing, extraordinary kind of colonial uh, missionary schools um, where really only the sons of, of privilege went. And, and so he had an education that was a mixture of of, of Western and African, and, and basically he himself is a kind of mixture of, of Western and African. Someone once said he's a mixture of African royalty and European aristocracy, which is kind of a nice um, combination because he has that formal uh, Western bearing with, with all of the stuff that he learned growing up in this area in the Transkei where he was, he was shielded from so much that was going on in the rest of South Africa. I mean, he, um, the National Party only came into power in 1948, so apartheid was only kind of legalized then, but obviously it had existed under the British. And he never really, um, and it's going to sound funny, he never met a white person until he went off to school. And um, in the culture of the ANC, as it turns out, that was very, very important. Um, I, I spent a lot of time talking to other people he'd been in prison with, uh, including the great and good Walter Susulu, who was known as Allah in, uh, on Robin Island because he was so wise. And one of the things that in that generation that they looked for is what I'm about to describe to you. Um, Walter told me the story of when he first met Nelson Mandela. And, and Walter Susulu was working as a real estate agent in Soweto. It's the 1950s now. Um, and uh, he was trying to get the ANC to, to grow as an organization. The ANC is an old organization. It was actually formed in 1912, even before Time Magazine. And, um, <laughs> and, and they were looking for, for leaders. And, and, and Mandela came to Johannesburg. He had left uh, M. Kwikizeni, the, the royal kraal where he was raised, because the regent wanted to arrange a marriage for him and the regent's son. And they, you know, they lit out for Johannesburg because they did not want to uh, you know, have an arranged marriage, and, um, which is another example of the kind of Western background that he had because he had a Western view of love. And so one day he has an appointment to see Walter Susulu, and Susulu told me about the day that Mandela walked into his office, and he said to me, we were trying to be a mass organization, and suddenly a mass leader walked into my office. Nelson Mandela was then probably all of 25 or 26, and, and what Walter meant by that was in association with leadership that we sometimes forget. Um, I mean, if you see pictures of Mandela from that era, you, you'll see it. He was, he's six foot two, he has broad shoulders, he has a great smile. In fact, smiles in politics were something very rare in those days. And he, if you look at leader, leader, African leaders or even Western leaders in the 1950s, they're never smiling. But you look at pictures of Mandela from 1950, and he is smiling. It's a really interesting thing. So Sulu saw in Mandela uh, somebody who really had the potential to be what he became, not only a transformational leader, but, but an international icon and symbol. And that was, I think, long before Mandela saw that in himself. And I think Walter's great role with Mandela was as a mentor and, and helped teach him those things. So, so getting back to the narrative, we, um, after the, uh, that first incident, uh, we, made an appoint we made appointments to see each other. He was, he was a, he's a very early riser. He um, gets up at 4 or 4.30 in the morning 
And we would have appointments either at Shell House, and then as we got to know each other better, at his home. And I actually remember, I think, on the second or third appointment at Shell House, he loved calling people and waking them up in the morning and pretending that they, of course, should be awake at 6 a.m. or whenever our appointment was. And I remember he was talking to somebody. I think it was Cyril Ramaphosa, who I also got to know, who should be the leader of South Africa. And he must have said to him, well, don't you ever sleep? And Mandela said, oh, I only get two or three hours of sleep a night. So I turned to him and I said, is that true? He said, no, I always get eight hours. I just tell people I get two or three hours. Which was an interesting sign of, which we'll get to later on, about what a kind of Machiavellian idealist he is, which is, in a way, one of the themes of Mandela's way, that he had one great overarching principle, democracy for his people, democracy for South Africa, and pretty much anything else besides that that helped him get to that goal was okay. I mean, he really was a pragmatist in that way. So we started meeting, and I was then a much younger man. It was about 18 years ago. I was in my mid-30s. And he was, again, also in his early 70s. And there's a kind of formality about him and an informality. As you say in the beginning, I talk about the kind of contradictions that he had in his personality. But they're contradictions which he thought were human. And that's the way he saw the world. In the beginning, I often asked him questions that were either or. I'd say, did you embrace the military struggle because you actually thought that it would overturn the government or because the ANC needed a shot in the arm in terms of publicity that you guys were doing something? And he'd always look at me in this kind of quizzical way. And his answer was almost always the same. Why not both, is what he said. And that was his answer to so many things. He saw contradiction, and he embraced it. He embraced it in himself. He saw it in others. It was never either or. It was always and and both. And that was one of the lessons. That's one of the lessons in Mandela's way. And it's one of the lessons that I learned from him. So we started meeting. In the beginning, he was quite formal. He's not from the confessional culture that we all live in. He is not introspective in a modern way, although if you read his so-called prison memoir, which he wrote while in prison, which actually exists and I used and we used for Long Walk to Freedom, which has never been published, which I actually think would be a publishing sensation for all of those publishers in the room and is part of the Mandela Foundation collection in the Center for Memory down there. He's a lovely writer. He's introspective in a kind of 19th century way, almost like Montaigne or something, where he questions himself. But when I was questioning him, he definitely resisted. He resisted any kind of self-analysis, which I'll get to. But he had this extraordinarily vivid memory, something that I've never seen before and I've never even really seen anybody note or write about. He could remember smells, the way things tasted, what he was wearing, the timbre in somebody's voice. It was really like he was watching a movie of his own life and then narrating it. And it was just such 
I mean, I, I'm a bad interviewer normally, but I was worse then because I was just in awe and just listening to these things. I'd sometimes not even ask a question because I was listening to this story. Um, there are about 75 hours of tapes from, from that time, which actually uh, we all, we donated to the uh, Mandela Foundation last year, so you can listen to them and you can actually see. My only reluctance in donating them was for people to see what a lame interviewer I was. <laughs> um, but you can, uh, you can, you can hear them. But, um, but as we, we got to know each other, he, he opened up a bit more. Um, he, he felt, it's kind of hard to imagine how, how he, he felt at the time, because he was at the same time, he really believed that South Africa was at a knife point, that, that there really was a chance for, for a, a civil war. Um, he really was terribly afraid of the, of the, uh, of the right wing uh, mounting a kind of revolution. You, we've seen the other day that the, the uh, the death of Eugene Terreblanche, and uh, you know who was one of the founders of the AWB, um, he 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 was doing he was trying to head off that threat. Um, he had an internal threat from him within the ANC, and and he was spending time with this you know American journalist, um, which everybody in the ANC regarded as a complete and utter waste of his time. Uh, but I think he saw as a kind of respite. It was kind of time out of mind. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is "Find Your Own Garden," which is something we talked about later on, where he. You know, he looks for some, people that all have to have something that's a, that's a distraction from, from their, their daily cares and worries. And for him, in prison, that was gardening. But I think at the time, that our work together was also kind of a, um, a distraction for him and, and something that he, that he came to enjoy. Um, I also said to him uh, early on, as, as we got to know each other, I said, look, I, and I'm, I'm not stupid, I thought, you know what, let's do all these interviews. But how do you feel if I just hang around with you and I travel with you and I, I'd, be, you know, I'd be a fly on the wall? Um, because it was like being a witness to history. And, and this was after he started to feel comfortable with me. And, and he agreed. I mean, I would ask him on different occasions, could I come along? But, but I, I sort of became a little bit like his uh, mascot, and, um, or in what in American politics you call the body guy, the person who's just hanging around and does everything from you know, writes remarks to, you know, gets you a new tie if it's dirty. Um, I used to, you know, get him out of the hotel room in the morning sometimes and had the, the uh, hilarious uh, occasion several times of walking into his room early in the morning with the, uh, the cleaning person and, and coming in and, and the cleaning woman seeing Nelson Mandela making his bed in the hotel, which is something that he did religiously every morning. He's an incredibly meticulous man, um, meticulous about everything. In fact, he kept a, uh, and this is also in the archive, I mean, he kept a, this incredibly detailed diary of everything that he did every day during 27 years in prison, including, you know, how many sit-ups and how many push-ups he did, and um, really is, is quite extraordinary. So he agreed that, that I could, could hang around, and, and, um, and, you know, the advice that I give uh, all, uh, you know, young journalists or anybody else, historians, um, was something that I followed myself, which is take notes. Um, and I did. I, I kept a very, very um, detailed diary of, of the time with him uh, that ended up being about 120,000 words, as you mentioned. And, and basically, Mandela's way came from that. And it was a, it was a lovely uh, and easy project to write just because I, I had those notes and I had it in my head. Um, so, uh, so we started meeting regularly. I started traveling around with him. Uh, that early Christmas, uh, at the end of 92, 
um, I went down with him to the Transkei, which is the area where he grew up. And um, to see Nelson Mandela down there is, is, is a wonderful thing, and um, it's something I think too few people have seen. Um, he, he, I wouldn't call him a, 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 he's certainly not a religious man, uh, and I wouldn't even uh, necessarily call him a spiritual man, but he has, he has ties to that area of the world. I mean, he once said to me, you know, every man should have a house within view of the house he was born in. And the house that he did build in the Transkei, which, by the way, was modeled on the floor plan of the last house he lived in at Victor Verster Prison, is within sight of the area where he was born. And he, he took sustenance from, from that area. And as I say, we would take these uh, early morning walks uh, at 4.45, 5 a.m., and he would, he would walk around the areas that he grew up in. And he, he, he never flagged. He was never tired uh, when, he, when he took those walks. And he, and again, he found, found sustenance in it. Um, he also used to give speeches and travel to little villages in the Transkei. And um, he's a Kosa, uh, and, um, and that is his, his first language. And it's not a language that I um, speak uh, at all, except for maybe 10 or 15 words. And, but one of the things that I noticed, and, and, and this was, has to do with the sort of bilingualism you have to have as a black politician in South Africa, he would, um, when he gave speeches in Kosa to local audiences, um, I noticed that they were, people were laughing, and laughing a lot. Um, he had a great and different sense of humor in his native language than he did in English, which was much more formal. I mean, if you've heard Nelson Mandela speak, which I assume everybody has, um, he ain't the greatest speaker in the world. In fact, you know, uh, I, I can't tell you how many audiences uh, I've been in front of, and as, as a person who used to work in politics, I, I, I know this all too well, people have this incredible excitement about him being there. And I mean, it was hardly containable. And then the instant he started speaking, you know, people's attention would wander. He was, he was, a, very, he was a very stiff speaker. And I used to ask him about it sometimes. And um, he didn't necessarily accept that, but he would always say, people want things explained. Um, but I did say to him, they don't want them explained at an hour and a half. Um, so, um, we, um, we, we spent a lot of time together down in the Transkei, and it was a different view of him, and it was also insightful for me, to, for, for just the material that I wrote about in, in Mandela's way, and I'll, I'll just tell one story that illuminates a lot about his leadership and, and his personality uh, that happened to us down there. And uh, it was, a, I, should, I should remember the date, and the date is in the book, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not very good with dates. And we took, um, we, were t we had taken an early morning walk, um, and, and basically it was just uh, uh, Madiba, as you say, which is what everybody calls him, uh, and me, and, and a few bodyguards, and that's what the walks were in the morning. And um, um, we left at about 5 o'clock, uh, we got back uh, to the house at about 8 a.m., and uh, he had had a pre-arrangement to shake hands with the, with the local rugby team. Um, and so he went into the house. Uh, he asked to have um, his breakfast ready, which was uh, a very abstemious person in what he eats. Uh, he had uh, porridge, and the porridge and fruit uh, was his breakfast. And um, he asked the, the folks in the kitchen to, to get the breakfast ready. Um, he went out to shake hands with the, with the local rugby team, and he'd probably gotten through about half of them uh, when he was called inside and said, there's a phone call for you. And um, I was inside, 
and it was in the study of, of, of his house, and it's when he learned that uh, Chris Hani had been assassinated. Chris Hani, who was then this uh, charismatic, uh, vibrant leader of uh, the South African Communist Party, uh, a man who in many ways was, was a, a potential rival to Mandela, which Mandela knew, and, and extremely popular with the rank and file of the ANC. He was a true man of the people. He hadn't been in exile like Thabo Mbeki. Uh, he had stayed on the ground, um, and he was a fierce uh, opponent of the, of the white regime, uh, you know, had been killed. And I, he was talked on the phone. You know, I noticed his expression changed. I mean, he has that uh, uh, incredible magnetic smile, but when he frowns, the, the frown becomes almost the exact opposite of, of that smile. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's not fun to be at the end of that frown, which I was at many, many times. And he said, yes, yes, yes. He said, I'll, I'll call you back. He put the phone down. And what did he do? He went back outside to finish shaking hands with the rugby team. Again, smiling, telling jokes, like he didn't have a care in the world. He came back into the house. Uh, the first thing he did was, where's my porridge? Um, and proceeded to start making phone calls to the leaders of the ANC to find out what happened, uh, to figure out some strategy to avert, again, what he thought was a potential uh, civil war. And um, he uh, stayed incredibly calm. Uh, he was very focused, very pragmatic. He ended up flying back to Johannesburg that night uh, to give a speech to the nation which um, F.W. de Klerk did not do for about 10 days afterwards. And again, it was part of how he saw his own leadership, that, that, that he understood that, 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 that people needed someone to talk to them about this, to have things explained. And he did go on television. It was just an amazing um, example within a very short amount of time of, of his extraordinary leadership. And um, it was that kind of thing that was was the great privilege that I had in, in working with him, seeing, seeing those kinds of situations, seeing those kinds of moments, seeing him in action. Um, I used to tag along when he had um, meetings with, with uh, high-level folks in the ANC, and it was, was, that was also interesting, too, because you'd see uh, how he had um, taken in that early African leadership model. In the trans guy, he, he used to talk about the king or the regent, um, what his leadership style was. And, and um, the, in that, the African tradition, it's a much more of a communal leadership style. And he said the king had, would have town meetings, and uh, he would introduce the meeting and then let everybody speak. And then he would only speak at the end. And then he would speak to really just sort of summarize the points of view and, and, and wouldn't necessarily lead from the front. Um, as there's a chapter in the book called Lead from the Front, he would lead from the back, as uh, there's a chapter in the book about that too. And so I would see Mandela at meetings with uh, the sort of high command of the ANC, and they would be haranguing him and, and you know, arguing with him, and he would listen and only speak at the end and only then kind of summarize and try to find um, some harmony in, that, in, that, in the point of view of the others. And um, it was an interesting leadership style because we tend to think of him as, as leading from the front, but he also um, leads from the back in uh, quite an amazing way. Um, the, the, you know, as we continued um, those conversations, um, there were whole areas that, um, that, I mean, I was quite fascinated with and, and in some ways had, had been mysterious. Um, there was a lot known about his life before he went into prison, and, and we do know a fair amount about his life when he came out. But the, but the prison years were, in some ways, um, the great mystery. And to me, the, 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 
the prison years are the key to who Mandela is and, and, and who we now know as Nelson Mandela. Because one of the things that people forget is that um, the man who went to prison, by the way, was um, 46 years old. Um, he, in 1964, that's Nelson Mandela. He's two years younger than Barack Obama is today. And he had been um, the leader of the ANC Youth League and had been uh, not completely unlike, and I, I don't want to draw a comparison with the current leader of the ANC Youth League, but, but at the time, Mandela was considered uh, a hot-headed, um, tempestuous um, young man who, who um, had excluded people from the ANC. He had uh, originally believed that, that, um, that communists should not be members of the ANC. He had originally believed that people of Indian heritage shouldn't be members of the ANC. He was a, he was a, he was a strict, core, hardline, um, hot-headed member of the ANC. That was the man who went to prison. Um, he gave this great, great, fantastic, famous speech, which if you haven't read, of course, I wouldn't recommend the whole thing, but the Rabonia speech when he was sentenced to life in prison, that last paragraph is, is up there with um, some of the greatest perorations of, of speeches ever. Um, but he was, a, but he was a, a different man, and, and prison really was his great teacher, his great tutor, and um, I would never recommend uh, you know, going away uh, for 27 years to learn those virtues, but, but, but prison burned away a lot of the parts of, of his character that we don't see anymore. It taught him uh, incredible self-control, um, because in prison that was pretty much all that you could control. Um, I remember going to see his cell after I'd worked with him for a while, um, his cell on Robben Island. I don't know if, if folks here have been to Robben Island, which is a, I, I highly recommend. It's, it's an incredibly beautiful spot, which is one of the things that must have made it so achingly painful. It's just, when you're standing on the beach at Robben Island and look back at Cape Town, it feels like you can touch it. Um, and I remember going into his cell for the first time and gasping when I saw it, because it's just, it wasn't human size, much less Mandela size. I mean, Mandela is a larger than life figure. And this tiny, tiny cell um, couldn't contain him. Um, I, he's a couple of inches taller than I am, and I'd lay down in it myself just to see if I could fit in it. And I, you know, I could, my feet touched one wall and my head touched the other. So he never actually could able properly lie down during the 18 years that, that he was in Robben Island. And, and, um, and he would never talk about it like this um, because he, he found it frustrating about what it taught him. But I was always after him to say, well, what is it? What's the difference between the man who went to prison in 1964 and the man who emerged in, in uh, 1990? And he kind of hated that question. And he hated all kinds of questions like that. And I would get, you know, I'd get a frown. Um, but one day he was just so irritated with me after I'd asked this question probably for the 20th time. He said, I came out mature. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's a lovely and simple sentence, and in some ways it's a, it's a, it's a kind of way of interpreting his whole uh, character and personality, because the, the words that he uses is to, to praise other people, um, other leaders, is mature, um, balanced, um, uh, you know, self-control. Um, and of course, in the, in the kind of Freudian way that when we describe others, we're really describing ourselves. I mean, that is how he saw himself, and that is what he felt he learned in prison. Um, and there are just a myriad examples of, of how he had to control himself, because he, 
that was the only thing you could control. Um, I talk about in the, in the book having been his um, body guy. You know, many times, particularly for interviews, we I would pin a microphone on him. I would I would straighten his tie. He you know, his hands. He had these big meaty hands that were very cumbersome. I would tie his shoes sometimes, and every time I ever touched him, it was eerie because he was so still. I mean, it was like fixing the tie on a statue. Um, it was uncanny. He didn't, he didn't drum his fingers. He didn't tap his feet. He was still. And um, even talking to him, it's almost like talking to a, to a picture that doesn't move. And I don't know if he was born with that or not, but I do think a lot of it had to do with all of those years in prison where, where you, you couldn't control anything. The only thing you could maybe control was your own body. And all of the times that he talked about that he feared uh, being assaulted, um, that um, he, you know, the number of times um, he talks about, there was not, he was never assaulted in a, in a really terrible way, but the humiliations that you had to go through, you know, of undressing and, you know, and having the guards spray you for a shower. I mean, when you think of this man who has this incredible um, dignity and power and, and, the, and the kind of humiliations that he was subjected to, it's the kind of thing, I think, that, that, that explains who he is. And, and that stillness, in a way, was, was something that, that he could control. Um, the, the, the other thing that he learned in, in prison was how to deal with, with other people and also how to deal with his enemy and his rivals. I mean, um, he, he learned um, Afrikaans in prison because he had a I think he had an insight early on in, in prison, which is that if I ever get out of here and I ever have a chance to achieve democracy in South Africa, it has to be working with everybody and it has to be working with, with, with um, Afrikaners. And um, he studied Afrikaans, which his, uh, his, his fellow jailmates thought was crazy. Uh, he learned Afrikaans poetry. He studied um, Afrikaans history, particularly military history. The, the Anglo-Boer War, um, I think they just call it the Anglo-Boer in South Africa. Um, the, you know, World War I, the rebellion of, 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 of Afrikaner militants, and, and he really immersed himself in that. And, and it was only years later that that actually came to help him in a very key way. Um, the, the, you know, there's that lovely, um, uh, the movie Invictus, uh, which was based on a, on a terrific book by John Carlin, um, you know, talks about how he used his knowledge of Afrikaner history to, to ingratiate himself. But, but what, he, what John doesn't really talk about is how he even did that in prison. And he would always address the warders in Afrikaans, which a lot of the other members, other prisoners, ANC prisoners, thought was a betrayal. Um, there, was a, there was a belief that he, particularly among other members of the ANC, that he was um, always closer to... Um, to compromising the ANC than, uh, than they were. And in fact, it was one of the battles that he had to fight secretly all those years in prison because there was skepticism you know, among fellow prisoners and skepticism sometimes in Lusaka where, where, um, where the ANC was based. Um, in fact, the, 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 the key moment in, in kind of modern South African history in some ways was his decision after he left Robben Island. He, um, he was taken to Polesmore Prison. He had um, he'd had surgery in uh, uh, prostate surgery in, in Cape Town, and then he was taken off Robben Island and to Polesmore Prison and was put by himself. And for all of these years, he'd been together. And it was then that, on his own, um, he made a decision to begin talks with the government. 
Um, so Nelson Mandela, uh, you know, prisoner number whatever he was then at Polesmore Prison, started writing letters to the head of the prison service saying, I'd like to have a meeting. And he spent two or three years writing these letters, and you can you know, now find them in the archive. And he finally got a, mi a meeting with the head of the prison service. And he simply said, I don't really want to meet with you. I want to meet with the government and begin negotiations. Um, you know, this was in the, 19, uh, the early 1980s. And, and he did this completely on his own. It was a violation of every bit of, of ANC policy at the time. Um, the ANC was still, you know, uh, continuing the armed struggle, and he initiated these, these conversations with the government. And uh, he tells the lovely story of how when he, when he finally was reunited with his, with his mates from Robben Island, uh, including Walter Sisulu and Ahmed Kathrada, who was, who was still alive, um, and told them what he was doing, he said, you know, they had a very mixed reaction. A couple of them said, why did you wait so long? And, and a couple of them felt, you're betraying us. You've betrayed everything that we, that we have stood for. And, and again, part of what the Nelson Mandela stands for is that he, and there's a chapter in the book about this as well, um, he had one, as I say, one overarching principle, uh, which, was, which was one person, one vote in South Africa, uh, democracy for his people. And anything that would get him there was something that he would do. When he opened those negotiations, um, he saw it as in pursuit of this great goal, um, but that he understood that it was also something that a lot of people would regard um, as a betrayal. Um, and yet he was willing to take that risk, and that ended up really creating that, um, that new dispensation um, that, um, that South Africa has achieved. Um, the, the other thing that was going on while we were working on the book um, was the South African election. Um, there were the uh, beginning of the negotiations for the Constitution, and he was beginning that um, campaign. And, um, and having covered and worked in politics myself, I was just very eager to be involved in any way that I could in the campaign. And, um, um, and I'm going to tell a campaign story that also tells, you know, is a greatly revealing about Mandela and is, a, is another chapter in Mandela's way. Um, he, um, uh, he liked campaigning. He liked being amongst the people, even though he wasn't uh, such a great speaker. Um, I always found it odd that uh, we'd go to places, um, like the place I'm about to say, and the, uh, how disorganized the ANC was. You know, there, was a, there was a lot of violence going on, particularly in what was then known as Natal or KwaZulu-Natal. Um, and uh, he wanted to go down there to, to quell the violence. He had, um, uh, he had very mixed feelings about, um, about uh, Chief Budalese, and, and he felt that, the, uh, that uh, his party, the Nkata Freedom Party, was undermining what was going on in, in, in South Africa, trying to, trying to foment their own revolution. And he decided to go down to uh, KwaZulu-Natal uh, to speak. And um, I was going to meet him down there. He was going to fly down there on a small plane. And, um, and it was just Mandela, a bodyguard of his named Mike, and, uh, and the two pilots. And I was waiting at this little airport, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the fellow who runs the, the airport came to me and said, um, there's an emergency. The, the uh, plane, uh, one of the propellers has stopped working. Um, and we, it, we're going to have an emergency landing. You know, these things often work out fine. And you know, they're going to put foam on the runway and, and all of this stuff. And, and uh, I remember thinking, that's quite something. Um, the, the plane landed um, uneventfully. Um, he, uh, he, of course, got out. 
There, was a, there were busloads of people waiting to see him. He always shook every hand of anybody waiting to see him. In fact, when he first got out of prison and lived in Soweto, tour buses would come by and he'd get up and go on the tour bus and say hello to everybody. Um, he shook every hand of everybody in the airport. In the meantime, I huddled with Mike, his, his bodyguard, and um, I, said, I said, what happened? What was it like up there? And he said about halfway through the trip, um, Madiba turned to him and said, um, you might want to tell the pilot that the propeller does not seem to be working. <laughs> and um, Mike, uh, it, maybe that was, a lot of these guys had never flown before. Um, and I, I don't know if Mike had or not, but maybe once or twice. And, and Mike looked out the window and uh, you know, took the two steps to where the pilot was. And the pilot was very aware that the propeller wasn't working. Mike came back uh, to tell Mandela about it. At which point, you know, Mandela just nodded in that way that he does, and he went. And Mike said he went back to reading the newspaper, and he loves reading newspapers. He was denied newspapers for most of the years in prison. I mean, he he goes through a newspaper. I mean, there'd be no problem in the media in the newspaper business if everybody was Nelson Mandela. He reads every page. So Mike said the whole rest of the flight, all he was doing was was reading the newspaper, and Mike himself was so nervous. The only thing that could calm him down was just looking at Mandela, who was reading the paper like he was you know, commuting in from the suburbs uh, to London. Plane lands, Mandela does all the handshakes. I'm waiting for him in, in his uh, you know, bulletproof BMW to go to the rally. He finally gets you know, into the back of the car. I'm sitting next to him. Um, and I said, how was the flight? And he leaned over and said to me, man, I was terrified up there. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it one of the amazing things about the course of the, all the interviews that, that I did with him is the number of times that he said to me he was scared or that he was terrified or that he was frightened. And in the beginning, I just I found it kind of unaccountable. I wasn't sure what he was saying. And, and I'd sometimes ask him about it. And he, he would, again, look at me like I was an nincompoop. And, and he'd say, well, isn't it irrational not to be afraid if a guard is about to assault you? Um, which, of course, makes sense. Um, but, but one of the rules, and it's sort of the first rule in the book, is that, is that courage is not the absence of fear. Um, you know, Mandela had the same, many of the same fears um, that we all have. And, and he lived through situations where, you know, fear was a very rational response. And he, and he would always say that, um, that what he had to do, because he knew other people depended on him, was the phrase he used was put up a front. You know, he had to pretend to be brave even when he was not brave. And, and it's a great life lesson for everybody, and it's one of the core um, lessons of the book. And, um, and it's, it's a very simple one. And, and one of the things I, I try to do in Mandela's way is to take this um, you know, really extraordinary experience I had and, and distill um, some of the, of the lessons from it. Um, um, it's, it's a little bit self-helpy, but it's also, it's also something I think that we can all take away. It's very hard to be Nelson Mandela. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. He's had a, he had, a, in many ways, an incredibly grim life that, that, um, that he probably wouldn't even wish on his own worst enemy. Um, but the idea for me, and having this extraordinary experience being with him, is to try to distill what the lessons are for him. And there are plenty of political lessons um, that we can talk about. And if, if people have questions about it, we can talk about um, you know, South African politics. But, but, it, but it was a life lesson in terms of something that, that I think that we could all learn from. Again, you know, very few of us uh, are going to unite a country and prevent civil war. But all of us have those same circumstances that he faced, but in our own lives. And, and so that was one of the things that I tried to, to, to do in the book. And, and it's not something that he would ever do. 
Um, you know, he's 91 now. Uh, he wrote a, a lovely preface for the book. Um, he probably thinks it's a silly idea to try to extrapolate rules, um, and it probably is. But, but it was something that I felt that I wanted to, to give back as well um, and, to, and to use from the, from the experience that I had. And um, uh, I've tried to tell you a few rules tonight. Um, I hope you'll you know, read them in the book, which, is, uh, which will probably take you as long to read as listening to this lecture. Uh, so that's a trade-off. Um, um, but I, uh, I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you all, and I'd, and I'd love to take some questions. So thanks very much. That was great, really lively. Um, so we're going to move straight to, to questions. There's, there's a mic here. There's probably a mic at the back somewhere. There's two mics. So uh, questions. Yep. Uh, and then gentleman at the back. Keiko Fugino, Nippon TV. Um, I was just wondering, a bit of a morbid question, but um, when uh, his, obviously Nelson Mandela's health has been in the report, has been reported on quite, you know, frequently these days, I guess. And I was wondering what you think would happen um, once he, he dies. Do you think it'll go into kind of a state of chaos in South Africa, or do you think it'll just be really, you know, everyone will just be engulfed in this massive kind of sadness? He, um, um, when he left politics, I, you know, there's a million things I forgot to say, but, um, you know, one of the lessons in the book is, is about quitting as leading to. One of the, the, the most masterful things that he ever did was to decide not to uh, run for re-election after, after being president. Um, you know, if you look at modern African history, there aren't very many examples of people willingly relinquishing power, and we see, uh, we see that all the time. And in some ways, the, the legacy for that, um, you know, I, I saw was, was George Washington, I mean, who, when, when he was elected pres first president of the United States, there were many people who wanted him to be president for life. Um, basically to be king, uh, he stayed in office for two terms and then uh, returned to his farm. And, and, and basically the, the U.S. Constitution didn't have two terms until you know, midway through the last century. And basically people followed the, the Washington model. You know, Mandela was very aware that he was you know, walking in sand that had never been walked in before and people would have to follow that. So, so when he left office, he said that he wasn't going to comment on anything. He was going to completely retire. That lasted, uh, I don't know, probably a year or so. And, um, and he became a critic of, of uh, you know, his successor, uh, Thabo Mbeki, particularly um, Mbeki's policy regarding HIV AIDS. Um, he spoke out on that. He had been a slow learner on that. Um, in many ways, remember, he came out of prison completely unversed in modern life. Um, and, and he is a quick learner for the most part. But there were things that he just reacted to as a man of his generation. Um, um, Jacob Zuma, who is the, the, now the president of South Africa, um, represents an actual divergence from, from the Mandela and Bakey line. Um, I mean, if you know South African politics, um, there is always a, um, there's been a, a competition, and in some ways a good competition, between the exile movement of the ANC that were mainly um, men and women of fairly elite backgrounds who, who left like Thabo Mbeki did, uh, went to London uh, during the years of the struggle. And the people um, the, the, who ran the UD, UDF, 
the unions who stayed in South Africa, like Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, who I mentioned earlier. And, um, and I actually believe that Mandela felt that, that, that his successor should be somebody from, from not from the exile movement. Um, but the, the, the leadership of the ANC wanted someone from, from one of the exiles, in this case, Thabo Mbeki, uh, to succeed him. One of the untold stories, and I don't actually tell it in, in this book, is that actually Tabo's father, Govan Mbeki, was a prisoner with Mandela on Robben Island and was also sentenced with him at the Ravonia trial. They really disliked each other. Um, and, um, and so there was an irony that this man, who in some ways was Mandela's rival on Robben Island, his son uh, succeeded him. Um, Jacob Zuma completely does not come from the exile movement. I mean, he is really the first you know, head of the ANC uh, and of, of a modern democratic South Africa who is genuinely a man of the people. He's Zulu, incredibly poor upbringing, and he represents this, this, this feeling within the ANC that, that maybe Mandela and Mbeki spent a little too much time uh, pleasing the West, pleasing the IMF, uh, sustaining the economy. There needs to be a lot more done for the, for the rank and file, for the, for the people of South Africa. Um, so it's a very long-winded answer to what was a very short question. I, I think that, the, that South Africa, on the one hand, is, is, is well-positioned um, to do well. Um, there's a lot of intrinsic structural problems that it has, you know, very, very high unemployment, very, very high uh, HIV-AIDS rate. Um, and now there's a, there's a little bit of a threat within the ANC itself with uh, uh, Mr. Malema, the head of the ANC Youth League. Maybe there'll be a splinter group from the ANC. I actually personally don't think that's a terrible idea. Um, the fact that it's, a, that it's effectively a one-party state, and even in the first election that the ANC had, had, uh, had you know, more than two-thirds members of parliament, uh, and therefore could uh, pass laws or veto laws, I don't think is a good thing. And um, I actually think that the, the democracy in South Africa might benefit from a, from a more fragmented political uh, universe. So, so I, think, I think when Mandela does, uh, does pass on, um, the fact that he's been out of the fray for a while, it will be, a, it'll be an incredible state funeral. I think they plan to have like 10 days of, of, uh, you know, kind of, of, of a funeral. Um, but he really is a, is a very distant presence now and sort of in the twilight. So I don't think, I don't think it will have a great deal of echo on contemporary South African politics. Gentleman at the back. Thank you. My name's Mike Harvey. Um, your book is about Mandela. Your current role is Time magazine. I would like to take a couple of things you said and develop them maybe closer to your current role. You mentioned that Mandela took the trouble to learn the culture and the history of the Afrikan, the enemy, and it worked. Also that he was prepared really to be um, challenged for making concessions to others. To what extent could this apply to people in Israel and Palestinians, i.e. learning one another's culture and history, but equally being brave enough to make concessions to the other side? Um, he, um, you know, he has, he's, um, one of the things about Mandela that, that, that is, is sort of an unwritten story, and um, if you look at that, um, at the, the prison diary that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the membership, the high-ranking membership of the ANC 
um, particularly in those years, was, was pretty much made up of all people who were members of the Communist Party. And um, they used to have debates on Robben Island. And um, they, um, some famous debates that they all talked about, one of them uh, was uh, whether the tiger was indigenous to Africa or not. People know the answer to that? The answer is no. Um, it's, it's, uh, the tiger is, is on the Indian subcontinent. There are no tigers in Africa. But people in the ANC believed that there were, so which shows you the nature of the debates. One of the other questions was, uh, is the ANC and the Communist Party the same? Which shows you the incredible overlap between the two. Um, the question of whether Mandela himself was a member of the Communist Party is one that's been you know, within South African historical circles you know, debated for many, many, many years. Um, um, I think if you, you know, if you read that prison journal, you'll have a, a good sense of what the answer is. Um, all of this is a prelude to saying that, that he's, he has a very um, progressive left-wing view of issues, including the Israeli-Palestinian one, and has been, and has been you know, completely outspoken about it. I mean, he, um, he was very disenchanted with the West. Uh, before he went to prison, he went cap in hand around you know the world trying to raise money for the ANC and and you know he was he was considered a terrorist by the UK by by the United States um, remember we you know America and Britain were allies of, of the of the apartheid government um, he was seeking to overthrow it um, you know the American CIA uh, had a lot to do with his actual eventual capture um, he he's not a fan of the West um, and he and he takes he takes a, a a, you know the view, you know when it comes to Israel and Palestine, that Israel has been the the oppressor. Uh, he sees uh, parallels with uh, the Palestinian situation and the and the and the situation of the oppressed majority um, in South Africa. And I mean, he's as as left on that, and, and traditionally, traditionally as left on that as as anybody in in public discourse. So um, so part of the reason that that I wanted to also write uh, Mandela's way is is is. The, uh, the kind of Santa Clausification of Nelson Mandela, that we think of him as this kindly uh, white-haired old man who brought uh, freedom to South Africa. I mean, you know, he's anything but that. And, um, and I mean, if you look at some of those issues, um, you know, his stance is, is, is very staunch and very left um, uh, and, and traditionally not acceptable uh, to, you know, European powers and America. But we kind of forget about that. Okay, this side, then, uh, young man here. And then we'll perhaps come over to the middle and right. Thanks. Uh, my name is Julian. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for the uh, fascinating talk. Um, I'd like to go back to the idea that you um, looked at of Mandela's um, amazing self-control through his uh, incarceration. Um, the, the, the film that came out recently was called Invictus, which was a reference to this great 19th century poem, uh, Invictus, um, which has that wonderful ending couplet, um, I am the captain of my fate, I am the master of my soul. Is it true that that poem inspired Mandela during those years? Um, and um, it, does the poem say something, do you think, about his character and about his uh, self-control? Uh, and, and, and do you think that, I mean, Gandhi also stressed the importance of, of self-control and of his self-control. Do you think that in some ways he was proving to his, uh, uh, the people imprisoning him 
that uh, he and his people and his race could control themselves and could govern themselves that he saw his self-control as kind of proof of, of the African people's ability to govern themselves. Repeat the last part of the question, I'm sorry. Um, whether he saw his own self-control through those years as proof of the African people's ability to control and to govern themselves in the same way Gandhi did for the Indian people. Okay, a um, couple of good questions there. The, the, um, I did think that it was odd that um, the, the book that, that the movie was based on has a very nice title, Playing the Enemy. Um, and instead, uh, in the you know, world's most popular medium, medium film, uh, they change it to the Latin title of a fairly uh, unknown poem that most people w wouldn't know that actually played very little role in his life at all. I mean, he, did, he had mentioned the poem to me. I think, it's, I think we do mention it in, um, in Long Walk to Freedom, uh, the autobiography, but um, it wasn't something that um, was... A, um, was a kind of core part of, uh, of his belief system. Um, he, um, he's a very ingratiating person, and, and, and he, he does, um, um, you know, has always been willing to make compromises. And um, I think of when um, uh, Bob Geldof went down uh, to see him shortly after he was released, and it was an interview that was supposed to be about cultural things. And, um, and, and Bob asked him, um, What's your favorite musical group? And he said, ABBA. <laughs> um, somebody, you know, some poor person on the ANC's PR staff must have said, this is the way that you, you know, reach out to white people by saying the whitest group imaginable. And, um, and, you know, he had no idea, I'm sure, who ABBA was. I mean, he was in prison for 27 years. I remember once going with him to a resort uh, for New Year's Eve and, um, and there was a house band that was playing covers of like basically the, all the famous songs of the 60s and 70s, including Beatles songs. And, and I remember looking at him and thinking, he was hearing these songs for the first time, songs that we had all, have all heard a thousand different times. Um, but um, but, but the, the question about self-control and whether, that, um, whether he saw that as, um, as evidence of, of what African politics can achieve, I do think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, there's a, um, I probably shouldn't say this, and I don't think he would mind, but, but you know, there's a, uh, an expression that is, is, um, is not entirely positive um, that, um, um, that South African whites use, um, and they say, well, it's African time, which means people are late. Um, and he was incredibly punctual. I mean, he believed in punctuality as a virtue. And I came to believe it was because it was to rebut stereotypes. Um, and I even heard him many times when people were late for him, you know, looking at his watch and saying, African time. Um, so I do think that, the, that um, it was a combination of, of his nature, but also a combination of, you know, he really believed that African politics needed discipline and needed self-control and that, you know, rallies should begin on time instead of three hours late. And, um, and people need to show up at meetings and they need to have done their, their preparation. And, you know, in a liberation movement, I mean, it's not, you know, it's like campaigning is very different than governing. And I think once he started governing, um, he wanted to try to, uh, you know, uh, foist those values on, 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 on the nation 
uh, and even be a, a, a kind of guide light for the rest of Africa. So I do think there's some, some truth to that. It's an interesting point. It's a little bit of a, of a delicate one, but, um, but he did want his own example uh, to be an example within South Africa and, and outside. Thank you. I'm Dennis Chapman. Uh, I do have a question, and it's a short question, and it's just how might the lessons that you've learned about Mandela's way help Zimbabwe and Mugabe and the current situation that's going on there? How could they learn from Mandela's way and improve, I mean, just the whole situation? Um, he, um, one of the things that he, he criticized about, um, uh, about Thabo Mbeki was he felt that um, that Mbeki and South Africa had um, been too much of an enabler for uh, Mugabe. Um, again, African politics are, are complicated, and, and you still see it now um, that you know there are, there are African leaders that don't want to condemn Mugabe because they see uh, it as, as something that, that is really led by the Western powers, and as much as they find uh, Mr. Mugabe unpalatable, um, they don't want to be seen siding with the West against a fellow African leader. Um, you saw, uh, you know, Mr. Malema, the head of the uh, ANC Youth League, you know, going up to, to uh, Zimbabwe and, and meeting with Mugabe and basically saying, you know, South Africa has to follow the, uh, the lessons of, of, of Zimbabwe and confiscate more land. And, and um, I do think in, in South Africa now there is a feeling that, that you know, the change has not been as, as transformational as it, as it needs to be. And there's probably, you know, within the rank and file of the ANC, a lot more sympathy for, um, for uh, Mr. Mugabe than there is, you know, in this room or, or, or certainly in the West. And, um, you know, I think Mandela, who has a foot in both worlds, um, really understood, um, you know, what was going on there. Um, he actually used to say um, that he thought um, Mugabe was sort of jealous of Mandela's own role as a revolutionary figure and, um, and didn't understand why Mandela was, was such a hero in the West and he was not. Um, I actually think that's probably true. I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, Mugabe has a very distorted view of how he's perceived. Um, I, I guess the, 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 the message or the lesson... Um, you know, in Mandela's way, it would be to, you know, to, his, to see both sides. I mean, to be able to come to some kind of uh, new dispensation. I mean, you know, the problem uh, uh, in Zimbabwe is that there's, you know, there's been just one side for such a long time, and, and, and uh, they've repressed the opposition. But, I mean, they do have a coalition government now. If it would actually exist as a coalition government uh, in practice, not just in name only, I think that would go... Uh, some distance toward resolving the situation, but I mean, I think he would say it's again, it's a, it's a situation that calls for negotiation, not for not for war. That's right where you are. Um, what is your view about Winnie Mandela? Winnie Mandela. Can you hear me now? No? I can't really. It's a little bit difficult. Uh, Hello? Can you hear me? We'll try. No? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, what is your view about Winnie Mandela? Um, I mean, she has suffered a lot 
I don't want to compare her to uh, what Nelson Mandela have been through, but um, she has suffered to free her husband, uh, she has struggled to free her people, and um, at the end uh, they are only, well, they haven't stood to the... To you asked about Winnie, is that yeah. right? Winnie Mandela, yeah. yeah. I think contextualizing um, her in relation to him and the struggle more generally. Um, he, um, uh, yeah. Um, do you think the media have de has demonized her just before Mandela was released mm -hmm. in order to deviate the power that they might stand? Interesting. Did the media demonize her just before he was released for political reasons? Um, I think that's what you said. It, it's an interesting question. I mean, I mean we, um, we spent a, a considerable amount of time talking about, about Winnie, um, he um, and the, 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 more, the older the memories, the fonder he was, the more recent the, the memories, the less fond he was. But, but one of the things that he said that, that always struck me and that I write a little bit about in Mandela's way um, was that he always said to me, she had a tougher time than he did. Um, he spent 27 years in prison and, and sort of insulated. Um, she was in and out of prison herself. She spent much longer in solitary confinement than he ever did. At the same time, she had to raise uh, the, her, the two girls they had together. Um, she had to be a, a symbol for the, for the South African nation. I mean, her, the, the complexity and difficulty of her situation, I think, was, was vastly more than his. Um, you know, most of us probably don't think that, but, but he certainly thought that. Um, I remember Walter Sisulu used to say um, that he hadn't had a good night's sleep since he left prison. Um, you know that it, prison did protect them in some ways, and I think he saw he saw his wife as being incredibly heroic. Um, um, you know, fighting against the powers that be. Um, at the same time, she did she made a lot of mistakes, um, mistakes that any normal person would probably have made. Um, whether the, the press um, demonized her before, uh, before, he re before he was released, um, you know, she, you know she, there was the Stompy trial. She was indicted for other, other different things before, you know, before he was released. Um, I actually think among the media there was a, um, people were looking for, it's actually contrary in some ways, they were looking for a kind of fairy tale ending. I mean, remember it was a, you know, there was not only a revolutionary story and a story of, of, of kind of reconciliation in South Africa, there was a, there was a love story um, that, that people believed existed. And, and I believe that, that um, Madiba uh, believed existed. I mean, one of the things that, are, that is available now at the uh, Center for Memory is some of the letters that he wrote to her during those years. And he had a very um, idealized and even romanticized view of her. And so um, I actually think that, that she um, was treated pretty fairly um, uh, by the media. Um, and in some ways, she, I mean, for the things that she did, I mean, you, you wouldn't, in, in, in England or America, you wouldn't be able to be a cabinet officer as she was afterwards. Um, uh, she has a great deal of credibility within the rank and file of the ANC. 
Um, I think it was a very, very complicated story, and I think he was um, personally very wounded by what happens. That's, that has really nothing to do almost with your question. Um, but um, but, but she's, a, she's a very complex figure, and he has a very complex view of her. In fact, they have a, they have a very uh, uh, warm relationship now, um, I think because all of that uh, drama is behind them. Yes, right at the back there. Just, if you just let the microphone come. What's the big question? What's the future? What's the future of South Africa? Um, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a South African uh, optimist, and um, I think they have the foundation for, for a, you know, a, you know, a really functioning, high-functioning um, country. I mean, I think there are things that are going right now um, that they don't get credit for. I think the, um, you know, uh, Mr. Zuma's uh, policy regarding crime is, is something which is. Which is, a, which is a real serious policy, unlike really what happened under uh, Mbeki and, uh, and Mandela. Um, you know, it's still a country that is incredibly rich in natural resources. Um, the, the fact that they're hosting the World Cup this summer, um, you know, they have looked as an as a opportunity to showcase um, the wealth and diversity of the country, and I, I, I hope it goes well. Um, as I said before, they have some serious structural problems. Um, you have, you know, two generations of, of young people who are a little bit older now who, who basically um, have no education um, because of the, the power of the, of the uh, union movement during the, uh, you know, during the, the struggle. Um, they have a very high wage base. Um, it's very difficult to open uh, factories in South Africa uh, in part because the unions are so strong. That's another liability that they have. In part because of the wealth of the country, it's been like a magnet for, for, for in some cases, uh, the dregs of Africa to, to move down to South Africa. So there are people from the front line, so old, old front line states, Zimbabwe, who are adding to the uh, unemployment crisis in South Africa. Um, so they have, it's a, it's a mixed it's a very mixed picture, but, um, but I do think that they have great, great potential to, to solve their problems, but, but it's going to take a really long time. A lot of hands now. Uh, gentlemen at the front, we've got time for a few more questions. We'll go up to the back afterwards. Uh, we, we have an election in this country on the 6th of May, and some people are worried that the leader of the opposition is perhaps too young and too inexperienced. And yet you had this amazing situation of, in South Africa of a group of exiles and somebody who had been in prison 27 years coming, suddenly being released and running the country. So in retrospect, do you think things would have been better if they'd been in opposition for a while? If they'd to been it, opposition to? Uh, to, to, the, to the then existing government in terms of actually learning how to run a country. Because a, um, a lot of the problems arose because there wasn't the, uh, sufficient experience to run the country. It's a, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a good question and, and kind of an impossible one in some ways to answer. Um, uh, the, um, um, the, the, the guys in the ANC, um, I mean, they weren't, I think by our standards, I mean, small d Democrats. I mean, they, they wanted to win more than, you know, two-thirds of the vote. Um, they don't have a problem or didn't have a problem with a one-party state. 
I do think if in the run-up to the election, if there had been an actually more vibrant democracy and more rival parties, I actually think that might have been dangerous. It's a very undemocratic thing for me to say. And maybe the dividends now would be better. You know, the Liberal Party wasn't much of an opposition. You know, the Nationalist Party, interestingly enough, as you know, won the Cape province in that first election in part because, you know, so-called colored voters voted for the Nats. You know, that helped create that kind of unity government. But I don't know the answer to your question. I mean, a lot of people do think that if there had been a more vibrant opposition and more of a two- or three-party state, they might have made more progress. I just don't know the answer to that. And I'm a little bit skeptical because I do think that the ANC guys really felt that it was owed to them. They felt that in order to make the changes that were necessary, the transformational changes, it needed to be a one-party state. You know, I no longer think that's desirable, but that's certainly what they thought at the time. Yeah, at the back. Thank you. Sorry, the picture that you've painted of him is of good and bad, and you've used words such as Machiavellian. And even after his rite of passage and the prison years, the fact that he does have family trouble now and, you know, he does have character flaws, to what extent do you think Mandela, the legend, as we all know him now, and as you say, it's going to be a huge funeral, he is one of the men of the 20th century, how much do you think his own personal flaws have contributed to the legend? Because obviously no one likes anyone that's perfect. How much do you think his personal flaws have contributed to the construction of his legend? His personal flaws? Well, I mean, again, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was to kind of present him flaws and all. I mean, most things written about him are pretty hagiographic, and I'm sure people think this book is as well. And it does represent what I think are ultimately his great virtues, but I think his great virtues come in part out of his flaws, the fact that he was this tempestuous young man that, you know, I talk about some kind of trivial flaws that he has. You know, I tell the anecdote about how I would often have to, when we went out to eat, I'd have to, after he left, I would have to leave a larger tip because he would just count out the pennies and not give a tip that was appropriate at the time. He would probably argue that when he went to prison, that was, you know, you only tip 2 percent or something. I do think that part of the problem, in a way, is that, as I mentioned before, is that he has been turned into this kind of flawless, heroic figure, and that people don't realize both what he went through and realize what he triumphed over to get there. So, you know, I'd love his legacy to be a more nuanced picture, but it probably won't be, I'm afraid. We still have time for a couple more. Yes, two down at the front. Yeah, I do. I talk a little bit about President Obama in the book, and, you know, in my regular life, I've spent a fair amount of time with him and, you know, covered the last presidential election. 
Um, what's interesting, and, I, and, I, and I've been criticized a little bit for comparing the two, and I'm not comparing their respective achievements. I mean, Obama is, is just at the beginning uh, in many ways of, of whatever his achievement will be. But I, one of the things I did find quite amazing is that, is that Obama does have that kind of composure and filter that Mandela learned after 27 years in prison that he didn't have when he was roughly Obama's age when he went to prison. And um, the, uh, the self-control that Obama has, the fact that he uh, has brought his rivals into, into his government, which is something Mandela did, um, the fact that he does try to find compromise where, wherever he goes, that he is ultimately, I believe, that is President Obama, a, a, a great pragmatist um, like Mandela, when, what we saw with health care reform, for example, I think he, he basically said, look, this is the goal. Um, how we actually get there doesn't matter all that much. I, I think that is what he said. That, that turned out to be a problem in the, in the process, I think. But, um, but I do think that there are a lot of, a lot of similarities. And, and right behind you, I think, yeah. You mentioned that he, um, he had a stated aim democracy and one vote for each member, sorry, each citizen in this country. Do you think in, in reaching that goal, he'd made a decision that he was willing to sacrifice um, the, the right to be himself? As you said, people have built up this mythology around him, and it's a burden he'll have to carry. I mean, there were questions here already about you know the example he's setting for the whole of Africa, which is an impossible um, burden to carry. Do you think that as part of his his number one goal, he decided that he was going to sacrifice the right to just be himself, to be a normal or live a normal life in any capacity? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely question because I think, it, I think it is true. I mean, he, um, you know, the, the, the moment he emerged from prison, he entered a different kind of prison, you know, a prison of fame, a, a prison of responsibility, um, a, a prison where he he lacked privacy in, in a very different way than he lacked privacy when he was in prison. I think he, I, I think he did. I mean, I mean, I think his whole life was in part about sacrificing his private life and sacrificing, you know, who Nelson Mandela really was. I mean, I, I, um, you know, there's that lovely story about the day that he um, uh, that he was released and where he um, was giving the speech from the town hall in Cape Town and. Uh, and his car, his kind of motorcade, got lost, and um, and they ended up in Constantia, this very uh, ritzy suburb of, of Cape Town. And and he was in his the, the BMW, and he was driving um, up a hill, and there was a young woman uh, wheeling a baby carriage. This is a couple of hours after he got out of prison, and um, he asked the driver to stop the car, and he got out. And, and it was a you know, young white woman, and he introduced himself, and he said, can I hold your baby? He hadn't held a baby in 27 years, and um, he's a man who loves children, and he's very tactile, and he loves being around women, and, and you know, this image of him holding this tiny little baby on the day that he was released, I mean, was always so poignant, because um, it just shows in a very human and tiny way the the incredible sacrifice that he made, and I think he, I think he realized, um, you know, at an early point that that he, that there was no, that the inner Nelson Mandela, the personal Nelson Mandela, that the satisfactions that that an individual might have was just something that that weren't 
um, in the cards for him. There's a lovely story that he, and a, and a terribly sad story that he would always tell when he was, um, his children by his first marriage, um, uh, he would visit when he was uh, underground, um, when he was the, the so-called uh, black pimpernel in South Africa, and he would, you know, would see his sons, and his son would say, well, Daddy, why can't you spend the night here or, or stay with us? And he you know, had to say these agonizing words that said, There's, because there are millions of other children in South Africa that need me too. And that's a terrible thing to have to say as a father, but, um, but I think that is how he saw his role, and he saw that, that, that the personal satisfactions that, um, you know, that make us human were, were things that were um, not really available to him. Yeah, I think you'll have to be the, the last question. Thank you. Why did Nelson Mandela choose you to do this job? <laughs> Why, did, sorry? Why did Nelson Mandela choose you to do this job? Um, well, the, the, the truth is, um, he didn't. Um, and um, I, was, I was sort of foisted on him, and it was a, uh, a shotgun marriage. And I think it's one that, that eventually worked. But, but, I mean, if you, you know, if you look at the... At the, at the two halves, it doesn't necessarily um, look like one. And I think it was, uh, um, as I mentioned at the very, very beginning of the evening, it was, it was in part you know, desperation by the publisher uh, to, to get me to do it. And, um, and I think it did um, work out in the end. Um, I think like so many, like so many people, um, um, you know, Nelson Mandela has a central role in my life, but I'm not anywhere near delusional uh, enough to think that I have any kind of role in his life. But, it, but, but the lesson for me is that, that there are so many people for whom he is central, uh, for whom he is a model. Um, you know, when I said goodbye to him after the end of the, uh, you know, the kind of sessions, even though I saw him many times over the years, I mean, I gave him this great big hug, and, and he's not really a hugger. And, um, <laughs> And, but I remember a few seconds into it, he, he responded. I mean, because he, he knew that I needed it. And I thought to myself, um, think of all the men in really desperate and terrible situations that, that hugged him for support. And, and that was you know, incredibly meaningful to me. And again, part of what I was trying to do in the book is to kind of show that, that love and, and what he meant to so many people and what, and what the lessons that he teaches. And, um, and you know, that was just an extraordinary privilege for me. So great last question. <laughs> great last question. Uh, just, it was a great last question. It just remains for me to say thanks to everybody for, for coming out and, uh, and uh, sharing your questions. Um, people usually gather around the front at this stage and talk to the speaker directly, but we're going to get off quickly into the lobby area so that Richard can uh, sign copies of his book if anybody wants to uh, purchase one. Uh, but it just remains also to say thanks very much for sharing your thoughts on Nelson Mandela's way with us tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.